Hello and welcome everyone again to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moed Amin, and the goal of this show is very simply to help you achieve the best version of yourself. And when you think about the noble character, you know, one of the characters I think about when I think about someone who's got a noble character or noble spirit is their incredible ability to communicate, convey, and persuade their perspective and new perspectives to anyone that they speak to. And that is really the goal of this show is to help sales professionals, sales leaders, business leaders, whatever walk of life, even those, even those involved in science where persuasion is going to be a key part of your growth. You know, how do you persuade people in the right way? What is the science behind that? And what are all the elements that are involved in becoming an amazing persuader? So we will have guests on the show that come from all walks of life, from human behavior to body language, to even health and how that affects the way you show up every day. Today, I'm delighted to have our next guest on the show. Um, he is the founder and chief prospecting officer for Blissful Prospecting. Now, I heard about this and I came across, uh, I came across him during uh, a summer roadshow, virtual roadshow that he had organized in the summer of 2020. So really at the height of the whole COVID lockdown. And I gotta say, I loved the content. I loved the guests that he had on the show. And since then I started following, following him and became really a big fan of his reply method. So really excited to have him on the show. Please help me welcome someone who, who actually started his career selling uh, house painting services door to door during the 2008 financial crisis. So really impressive what he did there. Please help me welcome Mr. Jason Bay. Jason, Jason uh, welcome to the uh, show. It's great to have you on board. Well, it's good to be here. I didn't know you were following me during the uh, the 2020 virtual uh, thing. I wish we would have connected earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we should. And, and to be honest, it was it was actually not it was not, uh, I didn't come across you directly. It was actually one of your guests. I can't remember who it was, but he's a well-known sales expert. Uh, and he was posting on LinkedIn that he's coming to your wow. show, coming to join your virtual event. And he was going to be one of the speakers and inviting people cool. to join. So actually that was, uh, that was a great, uh, really kind of, uh, really kind of luck um, involved in that. But yeah, that's how I came across you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Um, uh... I love the little tagline of your show too, around, you know, persuasion, you know, not to derail your interview or anything, but I'm curious, what does, cause persuasion, sometimes I've heard people say persuasion is a dirty word, you know, and it's like, I should compel versus persuade or whatever. Like, what are your, what's your take on the, on that, I guess. And what we're trying to do as salespeople or marketers. That's really interesting. I was asked this by another show that I'd been a guest on yeah and they they talked about you know people when they hear about some of the techniques that I talk about in neuroscience and mm -hmm. behavioral psychology and they think well that's manipulation and my my simple answer is this persuasion is just a word and a term used for you to be able to um not only convey your perspective but to help them see that that perspective could be the answer and yeah. It's the mind and the intent behind the techniques of persuasion that will determine the outcome, whether that outcome is for, for good or for evil, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, you know, persuasion can seem, sales, it can be seen as a dirty term, 
but we don't yeah. we know that it's not we know that actually sales can be a force for good if used in the yeah. right way it's just like any tool um it is the mind and the intention behind the use of the tool that makes a difference a screwdriver um should be used to you know screw screws into the wall put up beautiful paintings you know create fixtures such as beds for your for your children to sleep in or it could be used to you know shank someone in the prison right it's it's yeah. the intention behind that um so that's that's yeah. kind of how why and i i feel persuasion is different to influencing you know and, and there are elements where they kind of cross over i just don't use influencer because it, it has more of marketing term for people nowadays yeah. um so i use the word persuasion um but you know there's a huge element of influencing persuasion that kind of crossing over quite a bit but yeah i don't know if that answers yeah. your question but it's an interesting one yeah I totally what does it mean to, what does it mean to you <clears throat> well I, I don't know i kind of movies is not good i sort of use a lot of these things interchangeably i i think that because i think it's a journey you know i happen to specialize more on outbound you know type of messaging which is really an exercise in marketing right and there's this a lot of talk on linkedin that i see people it's mostly sales influencers like us right talking heads oh you shouldn't your goal should not to be to change someone's mind and i'm like i can think of a lot of things i've bought where the person did a really good job of helping me change my mind they weren't weird about it i still am in control as a buyer of whether i decide to buy something or not but they made a really compelling case and they helped me change my mind like they they were a really big part in you know influencing or persuading or whatever you want to call it my mind and I don't know. I think sometimes we forget that whether it's outbound or selling the low hanging fruits, the easy stuff, the people that are already bought in for, in my case on spending money on training to help their team with outbound, that's the, those are the easy people to sell. You should be able to get a large percentage of those. And it's just a matter of me showing that I'm you know, better or different or a better fit for the prospect from my competitor. That's not really where the challenge is. I think the challenge is to get someone that's not even thinking about this into a state where they've been educated and they're like, oh, wow, this person really changed my mind on how I think about outbound. You know, so I don't know. You you would be able to tell me what the neuroscience and the maybe more of the psychology is behind that. But I'm like, yeah, I do want to change people's minds for sure. Because, you know, 97% or whatever the stat is of people that you interact with in your target market are not in an active buying window. You know, those are that. That's the that's where I can gain market share is that group, not the three percent that are already buying it. That's table stakes. You should get the, a large percentage of those. You know. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective. Actually, you're, you're making me think about it a bit more. You know, persuasion, and 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 this is an outbound as well. I mean, of all of all this, I mean, sales <clears throat> sales is at the sharpest end of where your business touches the marketplace. And if yeah. there was a sharper, sharpest end of that sharp end of the sphere, then outbound is really that sharpest end. And it's, le it's less persuading people. It's more showing them a different perspective, mm -hmm. showing them a new way of thinking about something. And there's a ton of research around that. I can talk about the neuroscience, but it's, it's when you show someone that new perspective that they were either unaware of that's caught them by surprise. And biologically, we are wired to observe salience and things that surprise us, right? Um, 
but but it, it doesn't have to be just surprising it could be something that yeah i agree with but i underappreciated the value of that path right so either yeah. i thought that you know i can get the growth of x percent going down this path and then you say to me well actually you're not going to get 20 percent growth you're only going to get 10 percent growth and here is why so it's, it's really a different perspective. And it's through that different perspective, you can actually have a dialogue, which can then lead to persuasion. I, I see persuasion as a softer form and it's done with grace rather than, rather than just pushing up against someone and basically telling them why they're wrong and showing stats, et cetera. Actually, there's a yeah. ton of research out there that shows that my thalamus, my brain is going to reject that because it's, it's, it doesn't come into my part of my world. So there's a point where you kind of have to step into the flowing river of that person's brain, that person's mind, that person's life and the way that they think and understand them before you start to show them a different perspective that they're going to be more amenable to and have a conversation with you about. Yeah, well, likability, I think, is a really that was one of the big things in Robert Cialdini's work, right? And in influence was likability is such a big part of being able to influence people. And um, this is kind of an interesting topic that I think a lot about with Outbound because a lot of, you know, I think of the companies, like what they sell that I work with. One of them is a conversational intelligence tool that is trying to convince customers that it's not good enough to just record your calls. What do you do with all the data that you're capturing? Because getting a call recording, God, we've had that technology for a long time. What do you do with that? And how do you get that call recording and the data that you gather from it to go to work for you? You know, but I can't come in and talk to a VP of sales and say, you're doing it all wrong. I'm not very likable <laughs> when I approach someone like that. There's a really interesting... Um, Will Allred, he's a co-founder at a company called Lavender. I don't know if you've heard of Lavender. They got a really cool sales email assistant tool. So about 2 million emails get sent through their platform on a monthly basis. And they found that the use of unsure tones increases reply rates by three to four times. I've already been teaching this in, over the phone. An unsure tone is, uh, hey, Moeed, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Looks like you guys are doing a lot of hiring right now. I saw about 20 open positions on your SDR team. Did I get that right? Even if I see it and I know for a fact that that was on the website, you guys are advertising that, me coming in and saying, correct me if I'm wrong, or, hey, I could be mistaken here, but a lot of times when people are doing this level of hiring, one thing that they tend to be really focused on is reducing ramp time, getting these people, instead of waiting three, four, five, six months, for them to land their first couple of meetings, they'd like to do that in four to six weeks. Is that by any chance something that you're thinking about? And when I approach it like that, I think the psychology behind the unsure tone is, you know, I'm coming off as someone that's more likable and a peer and someone that doesn't sound like a know-it-all because we don't like to talk to people that feel like they know our business better than we know our business. You know, so there's an art there to bringing a compelling insight to someone or pointing out a problem to someone, which is such a crucial part of outbound coming in with a unique perspective and pointing out a problem that they may or may not be aware of and then educating them around that. But doing that in a way that gets the person to lean in is really kind of an art. 
you know, but there's a lot of data around the language that you use to talk about that stuff. That's really interesting to talk about. That's super interesting. What, what else have you found in terms of data around language and tonality or any of those things? What, what else have you found? Because that particular one, I've got to tell you, I mean, I know about that, but precious few salespeople, particularly SDRs and those involved in outbound are either aware or even trained and made aware of that by their leaders. So that already was incredibly yeah. valuable, Jay. Uh, what, other, what other kind of insights have you, have you gathered yeah. through your time? Just to point out a couple, one comment on that before we uh, move to the next one is think about the, the thinking behind this is I want to be as non-accusatory as possible. So when I point out a problem that I see that you have, I'm going to assume that you already know it's a problem and that you're already on top of it. So another kind of language that I really like to use in emails, this is so much more important because we're talking here. You can see me. I'm smiling right now. I can convey tone. I can be cheeky. I can joke. And it's not going to, it doesn't have the likelihood of being misunderstood as much as an email does. It's really hard to convey tone in written form, even for people that do a lot of writing, which most salespeople don't do a lot of writing. So when you see a problem, so I have a, a company that uh, they help with like customer experience, right? And a lot of times what they're trying to point out on an e-com site is when the experience is bad and it takes too long to get answers to their questions because it can reduce the amount of sales that they make, right? So if I'm going to point out that problem, I'm not going to say, hey, Malid, I, I submitted a form and I noticed that it took 24 hours to get back to me. And I'm really concerned that as a customer that this might happen, I might say, you're probably already aware of this, or you're probably on top of this, or I'm sure you have this handled. But when I did this, I noticed this. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the impact according to, God, I'm forgetting the website now. It's a really popular Shopify data is that customers, when they don't get answers to their questions within an hour, they're 50% uh, 51% more likely to tab hop and go to a competitor would hate to see that happen to you. But when I can say things like, I'm sure you're already on top of this, you might be aware of it. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. And it feels like I'm looking out for them instead of pointing a finger at them. Super, super important. When I hear you describe all this, this is, uh, in my view and my observation, a far more advanced approach to outbound. In fact, a far more advanced approach to sales itself, right? I mean, precious few salespeople actually try to teach their buyers anything new or make them aware of anything new. You know, they will go through the usual, you know, questioning process straight away. They'll probably at most tell them, just basically splurge out facts about the business that the buyer already knows about their business. But you're, you're leading here with, in the challenger book, you know, leading with insights, you're, you're, you're giving them a new perspective here. What are your thoughts around the tension between the requirement, let's use a softer term, the requirement for outbound people to, um, you know, play the numbers game, scale, uh, reach out to people at scale and with volume versus a more kind of cerebral and precise approach to outbound where you're actually having them, you're actually starting the dialogue through a meaningful conversation as opposed yeah. to just, you know, 
So there is that tension there, Jason. So I'm, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts around that? What have you observed when it comes to that? And you know, what do you advise? Quick story to answer that. So I just interviewed Henry Shuck on my podcast. It's, it's going to go live. It'll probably go live by the time this goes live. He's the CEO and founder of ZoomInfo, right? Pretty successful software company. <laughs> yeah, and I asked him, if you have to hop on a sales call as a prospect, because usually he's getting involved as a CEO. This this would be like a, a you know seven figure plus probably deal, right? That someone's trying to sell something to ZoomInfo to help them. I asked him, what's the number one thing that you need to take away from your time on that call? And it was so simple what he said. I want to learn something. Teach me something that I don't know. And specifically, he used the words best in class. Yeah. Who is using your solution in a best in class way? that I could learn from because if they were able to get from point A to point F, I don't want to have to go through uh, B, C, D, and E to get to F. I want to skip straight to F. <laughs> you know, how could you help me shortcut my learning curve? That was really all you wanted, that thing. So when we're doing outbound, we need to just remember that the people we're talking to, executives especially, they want to know what best in class looks like. They want to know what the very best companies that use your solution, what they're doing and what kind of results they're getting. So in terms of the volume, it's the age old debate in sales is sales a numbers game. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, there has to be some volume, right? It's, it's no different than exercise. I, I think about it. It's like, yeah, you could do the perfect bench press, but if you only do one rep, I mean, you're not going to really, it's not going to do much for you. Right? So the way that I think of it is you got to really dig into the math. So if I'm doing SMB type of sales and the, the stuff that I sell on average is like 1000 2000 bucks a month maybe, that's going to be a little more transactional. It's going to be higher volume. You know, someone like that, uh, an account executive, let's say, that's selling and prospecting, they're probably going to need to run five to 10 plus meetings a week to hit the targets that they need to. And then what I do is I work backwards from there. So the five to 10, What's the typical conversion rate of the number of prospects that I reach out to into a meeting? How many activities does it take to create a meeting? So a metric that you can pull out is you could look at the last 30 days and say, between the email, phone, social, outbound activities I did, how many meetings did I land? And what's that meeting to uh, activity to meeting ratio? And I can use that to figure out the level of activity. And then on the very extreme side of that, you have enterprise and strategic type stuff where maybe I'm looking to get one meeting a week, maybe two or three meetings a month that are really good, high quality type stuff. I spend most of my time helping companies selling mid-market and enterprise. So we're doing a much more quality-based approach. So in terms of how I think about this, so if we want to even peel the onion a little bit more, I want to take a tier-based approach to how I speak with people. I know that on an account level, I'm gonna do a lot of research on the company, but I'm gonna do the most amount of you know, customized outreach for the above the line VPC level type folks that I'm reaching out to, and maybe directors if it's a really large company. But if I'm doing more groundswell and I'm talking to, let's say someone that would be using the product or a manager, I don't need to customize that stuff as much. So I might have, so the way this might look is I have a, a sequence for a C-level that might have 12 to 15 touches, 
six of those email, six of those social, or six of those uh, phone, excuse me, three social, and all of those touches might be customized. Whereas I'm reaching out to maybe a manager and I'm trying to get a meeting with this person, maybe it's just a pure email sequence. The first one's customized. The next five emails are you know, sequenced and automated because these people don't get reached out to as much. And maybe I only call the people that open up my emails. So you kind of need to think about how to grade the uh, people that you're reaching out to and you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? It's worth it for me to spend a couple hours of time over the course of a month to really carefully craft every email that I send to a CEO of a company or a chief human resources officer or whatever other persona. So we can, we can go into that a little bit more in depth if you want, but that's how I kind of think about the sequencing piece and like where to spend my time and how much time to spend and how to balance, you know, quality and quantity. The answer is that you need both, but you don't have to treat every prospect equally. You can lean more on quality for some and, and less on quantity for some of them. And then do the opposite of that, you know, for some other folks too. Now that's interesting. So, so let's, let's dig deeper into that because what you described in terms of the, the hook or the hypothesis that you're presenting to someone, that's not just, that's not something that a typical SDR, for example, would be able to do very quickly, that, that, that takes a bit of research. It takes a bit of reading and understanding of the buyer's world and, and their business and the risks involved it kind of takes practice because it's not just about delivering it it's about thinking in a different way so how do you you know what what blueprints or what methods do you use to help sdrs particularly those that are involved in outbound where they won't have so much experience you know how do you help them think in that right way and and look for those nuggets of insights that would really make the buyer think differently? Yeah, so great question. So if we start from the very beginning, the process that I typically take a, a company through, and then I'll answer the question around the SDR, is uh, it's really simple three-part framework. It's identify, engage, create. So identify is who you're reaching out to, ideal client profiles and personas. The engage part is the messaging and the sequences. So that's the, what do we say to these folks? How often do we say it? Where do we say it? The create piece is more, how do we take a conversation a reply to an email or a live prospect on the phone? How do we move that into creating an opportunity, qualified opportunity? So in the identify piece, what's super important here is, so I'll, I'll use an example. So I work with a company right now that sells into K through 12. And I'm working specifically with their uh, enterprise and strat. So these are really large school districts in, in America. I'm talking like LA school districts. It's got like 150 plus schools in it. These are huge deals. So the very first thing that we're going to do is figure out, you know what? We're going to start to create some segmentation in what we do. And we're going to look at this in these school districts. And we're going to look at different types of personas and what these people might care about. So what we figured out is that, hey, the solution that we sell, there's kind of an angle here for a director of curriculum and instruction. There's an angle here for someone that's like in student services, and there's an angle here for someone that's in IT and technology. These are all three people buying the same exact solution, but for three very, very different reasons. So if we start to look at this a little more nuanced, if we look at the director of curriculum instruction, the very first thing that I want to do as an SDR or a company, as a sales leader, is I want to put together what's called a messaging matrix. 
So a messaging matrix is, it's got four things in it. It's what are this person's typical priorities? What are the current solutions that they have in place? So how are they getting the job done right now, in other words? What are the problems that get in the way of them doing that? And then what are you know the more aspirational type things? Like what are the goals that someone like this might have? And I'll actually open this up as an example so you can hear kind of what, uh, what these folks are focused on. So if we look at a director of curriculum and instruction, and this is going to seg- this is going to circle back to what you mentioned around research, because this is the what we, what do we look for part. So when we workshop this, we found out that a director of cu- uh, curriculum and instruction cares a lot about three things right now. One is unfinished learning, and that's like basically prior to COVID, they had all these benchmarks, and when COVID happened, they had to move to a virtual setting, and a test scores really suffered because of that. When test scores suffer, a district doesn't get the amount of funding that they would hope to get from the state because it's a lot of it's prioritized based on the test scores that your students get. That's what people don't realize. They talk, you know, uh, bad about test scores all the time. And, oh, yeah, at least in America they do. Is this even required? This is kind of silly. Well, really a big reason for that is so that the government can determine who they give money to, <laughs> right? So that's, that's a really big part. Uh, student engagement. We'll just use those two as an example. So if unfinished learning... If they're trying to structure and focus their curriculum around learning targets and test scores and graduation rates, what I'm going to look for in my research is what does this school or school district talk to about what they're trying to accomplish around their learning targets? And I kind of look in three buckets. So what do they educate their audience about? What do they invest and spend money on? And then what do they brag about? Accomplishments. And when you know those three areas and I work backwards into my messaging matrix and I know that these personas, I know what they care about, I know what to look for. And when I know the types of problems that they might run into, I know what to look for too. So so for example, student engagement is one uh, priority for these folks, right? And specifically, it's meeting the needs of a diverse learning population and providing tiered levels of like support. I know the way that they currently go about doing that is through like Google Slides and all of these other kind of non-techie type solutions. So if I know that coming in, I can talk to a buyer about the typical problems associated with these types of learning solutions and how it's gonna keep them from hitting the test scores that they need to with their students. So you need to do that work upfront in the identify stage. Who am I reaching out to? And let's get laser focused and segmented around the personas And then let's get really detailed with those personas on their priorities, how they're making progress on that right now, their current solutions, the problems that that creates, and then aspirational goals that they have and KPIs that they care about measuring. And I use that as a blueprint to look for specific types of situations that an account or an individual might be in. So I know if a student or a uh, a director of curriculum and instruction cares about unfinished learning and they care about improving test scores, I'm going to look for situations and they have these types of, you know, reports and things that these districts put out where maybe the grades aren't as good as they would like, or maybe their grades because they get stack ranked next to all of the other school districts in the state. Maybe they're like not at the top. I would imagine it's a safe assumption that they probably want to be closer to the top. You know what I mean? So I'm able to kind of go in and do all of these things and look for things that support what I believe their priorities are. Where do I get those priorities? I get those from the conversations that my sales team has had with these people. What do they bring up during a disco call? What do they tell you that they're talking to you about? What are they trying to accomplish? 
right? Just talking to your prospects and your customers about this stuff is how you can get that information. And if you have a decently experienced sales team, you can just workshop all of this information out of them. So I know that was a lot there, but that's how I kind of reverse engineer where to go for the research because you got to know who you're talking to and what's important to them so that you know what to look for. Because the mistake that I, it's hilarious to watch this, by the way, a lot of times when people research an account, the very first thing, they just Google the company name. I'm like, you have no idea what you're looking for. I mean, that's like going to a grocery store and just combing every single aisle, every single row, every item. You would never grocery shop like that. It would take you like five hours. Usually you have a pretty good idea of what you're craving or what you're looking for or what's on your you know, grocery list. See, I want to approach research the same exact way. I want to know that there's three or four or five common things that I might look for, and I'm going to look for those things every single time. And those things are going to be connected to what I know to be important to people that are typically in this job role. So this is really valuable. Right? So I'm hoping people took note here, and I certainly did. Um, and there are, there are a lot of similarities in the way I look at things and what you're describing here. One thing that I was thinking that kind of flashed into my mind while you were describing this is what's been your experience of how, how you get people to, to move from the, and there's, there's a concept called psychological egoism, right? And it's a theory. I don't think it should be a theory, but I haven't really dug further into why it's still a theory or if it still is last time I read about it was, but psychological egoism is all about, you know, the fact that every decision that I make and everything that I do or action I do in some way, shape or form ultimately benefits me. And that's what really what motivates me. Everything mm -hmm. you just described there, Jason, was all about the buyer. Yeah. You, haven't even, you haven't even mentioned the company's solution, right? I mean, you mentioned them by name, but you haven't even mentioned this. And that's how it should be, right? Because, you know, they, they just want to understand, do you get their world? Now, yeah. what's your experience in getting, getting reps to shift from the traditional I, 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 and I actually did a study of this or how many times an SDR or outbound person would have I in there or we in their email and it's shocking. So moving from that to taking the approach that you just described, what's been your experience and how they've transitioned from, from the old way to this, to this new way? I mean, this is where some data comes in. Like the first two stats I always share at the beginning of a training are uh, the first one's 1%. And I ask people, what do you think this means? What do you think this is for? Well, it's the average reply rate to a cold email, according to Clearbit. It's 1%. Yeah. Yeah. And then I show another stat, 1.48%. What do you guys think this is? Well, it's the average success rate, according to Gong, for a positive outcome from a cold call. I was like, what are your guys' success rates? And everyone says something pretty similar to that, actually. So what I'll see is average reply rate of email around 1%. With cold calls, I see it a little higher, usually 3 to 5%. I'm like, I want you guys to think about how much work it takes for you to get a meeting right now. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of emails. That's a lot of phone calls that you're going to have to make to get a meeting. Now, I have a hunch on why this is happening. And I just show people by inbox. I say, look at all the cold emails because I tag them. <laughs> this is a great exercise to do, by the way. Have someone on your, at your company, an executive, 
have them do a little screen share with their team and just show them what their inbox looks like and show them what all the cold emails look like that they get. And you'll see that every single one of them starts out with, hi, my name is, I saw that, I was hoping, we do this. I was hoping I could get 15 minutes. That's the entire inbox looks like that. So when I show them that, I say, this is why your prospects aren't responding. They're desensitized to any talk about me. And I'm forgetting the the principle at play here, but it's the same thing that, you know, I go to therapy. It's the same thing a therapist use, uh, uses. And it's when I get someone to talk about themselves and when I talk about another person, it creates more intimacy in that conversation, in that relationship, whatever it might be. And it gets people to really trust you more. And it's not about talk time. You know, Gong's got a lot of really cool data on this. You know, the best cold calls aren't the ones where the prospect is talking more than the sales professional. It's actually more of a 60-40, right? Salesperson 60% of the time, buyer 40% of the time. But the content of the conversation is more about the other person. So big difference. It's not about talk time. I really don't care. Talk time is kind of a leading indicator that might be a red flag that I might look for. But I'm really looking for how much do I get the prospect to talk about themselves? And when you do this, I just have so many recordings of this stuff. You can do a cold call without pitching your solution. You just say people like you are typically focused on these things. Which one are you focused on? And they start talking about that. Hey, sometimes people run into problems with this, blah, 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 blah. And then before you know it, the prospect says, well, hey, what do you guys do? Oh, we just make those problems go away and we've done it for XYZ companies. I mean, how about we unpack this at a time when I'm not calling you in the middle of your day here and I can share some of those insights with you. That's literally all you have to do. There's no more of a pitch required than that. You know, so the data sort of speaks for itself. And I also ask people, you know, how many times have you been hung up on in the first 60 seconds of a call? Well, what are you doing? Hey, is this movie? Yeah. Well, hey, my name is Jason. I'm with Blissful Prospecting. We do this, this, and that. That's how everyone tells me that they call. Like, clearly that's not working for you. You know, so... The data and a rep's own personal experience with cold calling are usually enough to get buy-in, <laughs> you know, with that. So I haven't really seen a lot of data around, unless you have, around emails especially and the amount of, you know, eyes versus yous, although that is something that I teach. You should be saying more you versus I. I haven't seen any data around that, but again, I think it's, What's the content of that email? What's the content of that conversation? Is it focused on them versus focused on myself? Uh, the data is my own. So my, my limited sample size. Um, but the average, from my analysis, the average email from a salesperson where I is used or we is used, um, even in a short email, the average number is something like seven or eight times. Yeah. And seven or eight doesn't sound like a lot, but actually when you think about it and then you run through it and go, I, this, I, that, it is a lot. It's a ton. Uh, and, and compared with what is what is actually focused on the buyer average, maybe twice. Yeah. If you think about it, seven or eight times is about you and only twice is about the person that you're trying to ask for some time for. Yeah. Um, so it's been, it's, it's not great. And what about, 
so why do you feel it's hard for either sales leaders or business leaders or, or SDRs to transition? Because everything you say absolutely makes sense. Um, it, it, you know, it, and, and you, you even said yourself, it's not actually that hard. You've just got to, got to know where to look for that information and maybe practice it, right? Um, but why, why do you feel it's still hard for people to, to do it that way? Because when you ask, yeah. I mean, I'll give you a simple example here. When you ask salespeople, uh, when you ask sales leaders, they're very quick to judge other salespeople outside of their company on their sales approaches. Yeah. Um, and they will talk, you know, they'll say bad things about the approach and kind of just like, you know, very clearly kind of demonstrate why this was a bad approach and why this didn't kind of get their interest. And yet, they, and yet, when you look at their training programs and the behaviors of the sales managers and the metrics that they're using to measure performance, they're all eliciting the very same behaviors that they talk rubbish about. Um, yeah. So w why do you feel that there is this difficulty for people to move to this way that you're describing from the old way, even though it's clear the old way isn't working? Well, what's the barrier there, in your view? Yeah, uh, a bunch of things come to mind. I think it is actually hard but simple. And I look at those two things differently. Easy versus hard is more of an effort thing. Simple versus complex is more of the framework in the system. I think it's very simple. But the reason why I think it's hard is a few reasons. I'll just share some examples of things that I hear from my clients. One, that messaging matrix that I just walked you through, this is something we do for every persona we reach out to, and it's on one page. It's a one-page document. Prospect, what are their two or three priorities, current solutions, problems, aspirations? Usually when I do that exercise, that's the very first time they've ever seen a persona laid out in that way before. It's the very first time. So I think part of it is they haven't really done the work to train the rep on the persona. They have this information. I just don't think they understand how to make it like make sense easier, right? So I think laying it out and actually workshopping as a group, I find that oftentimes when I do it with a company, I work with some big companies, it's the very first time they've ever done that together as a group. I want to take the collective knowledge of all of my best sales professionals and, and do this exercise with them. The second thing is that I find a lot of more senior sales leaders in larger companies, like a VP, for example, will be very disconnected from what's going on. The best VPs that I work with are people that a couple times a week, they're pulling sample discovery calls to watch. They're pulling a couple sample cold call recordings. They're looking at a sample. They're spot checking. Right. Um, one of my one of the ways that I got a training deal was I was talking to this guy. He's like, I think my team does a pretty good job of it. I was like, go listen to their calls between now and the next time we talk. And it was just he was furious when he got on the call next. He's like, I can't, I can't believe what they're saying on the phone right now. You know, he's like, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> he's like, they're doing all the things that I advocate against. It's, it's the exact thing that you just shared with me, you know. So I think as a sales leader, they sometimes they're a little out of touch. I also believe, I, I love uh, Kyle Coleman over at Clary, the executive team, they prospect still. They don't do a lot of it, but they, they do send out some emails here and there. He picks up the phone and makes some calls. He's very in tune with what's going on. You know, I think that's a really big thing. And then the other part of this is that because people have not done this before, 
just like anything else, I like to use, you know, health analogies a lot, but if you've never lifted weights before, going to the going to a gym with a lot of people that know what they're doing is kind of intimidating to go do by yourself. You know what I mean? If I haven't done this type of selling where I don't talk about myself a lot and I talk more about the other person and I figure out what they want first and then I just figure out how my thing, if and and uh, how it aligns with what they want and what they're trying to accomplish. If I've never done that before, it's going to be very uncomfortable to do. Because what I'm going to resort to nine times out of ten when I'm uncomfortable is to talk about what I do because that's, that's the thing that I was trained on. And then lastly, the other big mistake that I see made that the best companies I work with don't do is the onboarding, the content of the onboarding is completely flipped on its head. Instead of a week of product training, it's a week of persona training and buyer training and like the landscape of the market and how their solution fits in with the, they spend most of the time training on that. And the product training is maybe a a 20% of what they get trained on. Most companies just do that backwards. I've been talking about this and people before me have been talking, we've been, this has probably been a conversation for decades now. And I don't know what it is. I still see most of the onboarding programs. It's a week of product training. I'm like, these reps are not going to learn unless they start talking to prospects. So what can I do to get them talking to prospects as quickly as possible? Well, I need to educate them on those prospects, you know? And then lastly, I would say another thing that you can do that I don't see people doing is they don't have enough conversations with their customers. As a sales leader, what I would be facilitating is customer interviews, whether the customer maybe just wants you to do it one-on-one. Uh, I've seen other companies do this. It's really cool. They do a fireside chat with their customers. So if I sell into CIOs, you know, they'll get some CIOs to come in and they'll facilitate a 30 minute fireside chat. They'll record it and they'll invite their sales team to it. And they basically do Q and a with a prospect to figure out what's important to them. You know, imagine doing that with 10 of your buyers. You got all this information. Hey, what are your priorities? What do you really care about on a day-to-day basis? How were you getting that done prior to using our solution? What problems were you having? What were the business problems? You know, what are you most afraid of? What content do you consume? You know, all of that kind of stuff gives you exactly what you need to sell to these people. And that requires work to do. But if you have a more buyer-centric approach to this and you take the time to do that, I mean, the results will just speak for themselves. It will be astronomically higher. The best companies that I work with do this. It's just a part of their culture. It's a customer-centric culture. Um, they share customer wins with their sales team. They don't just share sales wins. They don't share so-and-so, Johnny blew up his quota. It's no, look at this really big win that this customer got. Let's look at the, look at the work that we're doing here. So that's, that's the difference. Yeah, I, I've got to say that there's, a, there's an approach that I take with all my clients, which is, you know, you talk about bias interest. I, I talk about buyer obsession or customer obsession. Yeah. And to me, it's more than just centricity. It's more than just the buyer at the heart of everything that we do. It's um, yeah. the term that I use, Jason, is if someone was to ask you to describe the, a day in the life or a week in a life or a month in a life of your customer, you as the salesperson can describe it in such detail that the person who asked you that question would be forgiven for thinking that you've done that job before. Yeah. And that is the level of obsession that I work with clients to achieve. You know, it's not just about what they do day to day. It's what is it that they try to learn? 
where do they try to learn that and how frequent does that happen because that is where you know there is a share of attention and the question you've got to ask yourself is who's commanding that attention right who's commanding that share of narrative or share of voice in those places and uh, what you describe makes complete sense it's exactly what we've been doing all the training programs i've done with companies in the past the onboarding when i've led those sales team there's very little not very little in proportion to the whole training program much less product or service training and it's more about the buyer that is the part that we do the most so it's 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 really encouraging to hear you say that because i don't think that's being that's being said enough and I don't think people place as much importance on it as they should. Uh, Keith Cunningham, um, one of his concepts was, you know, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur or business leader, uh, be more in love with your customers, not in love with your products. Yeah. Because at who some point, those products, products are going to have to change, right? Yeah. Who cares about them? Like, the, these like product names, I don't even take the time to learn the products when I no. help a company either that's i never even asked for that i'm like what are the problems that you solve what are the exactly. goals that you help your prospects your customers accomplish because that's the language we're going to talk in i'm not going to mention a single product name in my cold email or cold call it's, it's gibberish it doesn't mean anything yeah and surprise and su surprise surprise your, your customers couldn't give it up they really couldn't yeah. care all they care about is how is this going to help me and if they can see that then maybe you can come into my world but until yep. that, I couldn't care less what it is. Yep. Um, man, this, this has been an incredibly good discussion. I can't believe the time has flown by already. I um, and, and, you know, I feel like there's so much there that we have to unpack. But I, I really hope our listeners and viewers have taken notes here, because I think if they do even just 10% of which you described, um, they will see incredible results. A um, couple of questions I want to ask you um, before, before we kind of wrap up. So number one, um, if, there were, uh, if there were three books or experts that you would really recommend our listeners and viewers would read or listen to, et cetera, you know, wh who would they be? And they, they could be people like for all time, or it could be people that you're kind of just reading or learning from right now. But who, who yeah. would, what three books or people would you recommend? Oh man, this is a tough one. So Anthony Iannarino is a guy that I would check out. He's a mentor of mine. I've gotten to know him pretty well over the last six months or so. And uh, he's one of the smartest dudes in the space. So just very experienced when it comes to enterprise selling. You know, he runs a $50 million staffing company and does coaching and consulting and that sort of stuff. So he's in the game and understands it. And he's got some great books. Any of his books are great. And then I sort of tend to lean towards things outside of sales. Um, I think any of Brene Brown's stuff is going to be really, really good for empathy. And I noticed that a lot of sellers in business people really lack a lot of empathy. And I, was, I used to be like this a lot. It's still something that I work on. And any of her type of stuff is, is really good. And then I hate to be the kind of stereotypical, you know, if you haven't really like Tim Ferriss's work, if you haven't for a, from a productivity standpoint, four hour work week, I was so resistant to picking that book up for the longest time. Cause it's such an infomercial sounding, you know, book title, but the productivity advice in that book and through his podcast is just a complete game changer. 
Tools of Titans would be probably the book that I would pick up of his if you didn't read Four Hour Workweek. It's got a lot of really good actionable stuff in there. So those are the three people that kind of come to my mind off the top of my head. I would really look at stuff outside of sales has been the Mm -hmm. most helpful for me to become a better sales professional and, you know, business owner. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. Uh, I heard a saying that's just stuck with me over the years. Um, success is less about knowledge or skills you acquire. It's actually more about the person you become. So yeah. if you if you think about it in that way, you will automatic and, and do it well. You'll automatically get an edge because most people aren't thinking like that. Yep. It's it's the habits and the personality that comes through. Yeah, I love those three. I, I've got tools of Titan, and I I flip straight to Arnold Schwarzenegger section where he interviewed him, which I thought was really interesting. <laughs> yep. I just, but I yep. haven't read the Four Hour Work Week, but I do know the misconception about that book because people believe it's like you know how do you work four hours a week when actually it's more about how can you get as much done in four hours a week. Or let, at least that's what I understood of it. Did yep. I get that right, or is it? Yeah, it's it's a sort of story about how he got his business down to him working that amount of time, but it's not, he's not advocating for a four hour work week. So mm-hmm. the, this is, it's weird because it's such a popular book. And I was so resistant to picking it up for the longest time because of that, but that's not the takeaway, you know, that's, that's not the takeaway at all, but there's a lot of really good dude, how you manage your time and your attention. I look at that like Wi-Fi. If, if, if you're not, if you're not really good at being productive and prioritizing what's important, that's like having slow Wi-Fi. Imagine trying to get work done with 10 megabytes per second. You know what I mean? It's going to be a long ass work day for you to get that done. So optimizing your productivity and time management, your ability to prioritize and also block out distractions. It's just, it's, it will accelerate everything else that you do. Yeah. I mean, time, time, like, like health is your most valuable currency. For sure. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. How can uh, how can our listeners and viewers learn more about you, connect with you? And I recommend it, by the way. Um, how can they do so? Yeah, yeah. Blissful Prospecting Podcast. We got a, a podcast as well. Go check it out while you're in the app right now. Go subscribe to it. And then uh, blissfulprospecting.com. So we got a couple of cool things there. One, a uh, bunch of free resources I post on LinkedIn every day, which is where you can check it out there. We got a bunch of guides. And we also have programs for both reps and sales uh, teams as well. So if you're wanting help implementing some of the stuff we talked about today, blissfulprospecting.com is going to be the best place to check me out. Yeah, great stuff. I, I'm, I'm really pleased that we had this conversation uh, today, uh, Jason. I, I've learned a lot and I've been in this game for t- over 20 years, right? At some of the highest levels yeah. like CEB and Gartner and Foreman and others. So if I learn something, then I'm, I'm sure people who are listening that are humble enough will have learned a ton as well. So thank you for yeah. taking the time to join us on this. Uh, and I appreciate share your you having knowledge. me. Yeah, yeah I appreciate pleasure. you having me. Yeah, our pleasure. And uh, if anyone would like to learn more about what I do and some of the neuroscience and science behind that, do leave a note in the comments section or contact me at inquiries at proverbialdoor.com. But until then, stay, stay, uh, stay progressing. Progress equals fulfillment. And I'll see you on the next session.